In a bizarre finding, a New York jury awards $5 million to a woman who just recently remembered she was raped by former President Trump. The Biden administration is releasing criminals at the border to make room for new criminals who will be crossing after Thursday. And the federal government is quietly violating the Constitution by using government agencies to federalize our election system. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning. Welcome. I'm glad that uh, you decided to join us today for Truth and Politics and Culture. And it's a great day to be having plenty of opportunities to get engaged and involved in the culture and to make a difference out there. So I hope that's what you're planning to do. That's what I'm going to plan to do today, at least hope to do. Um, Just want to quickly go over a couple of things from the South Carolina legislature from yesterday before we dive into this defamation and assault verdict by a jury in New York against former President Trump. Yesterday, the House Judiciary Committee had kind of a rushed schedule. They had a subcommittee meeting that started yesterday morning at 9 o'clock, and they were able to hear testimony. They gave ample uh, time for the people who signed up or or who wanted to testify to do so. And this is all about uh, the Senate version of the heartbeat bill that came over the Senate passed earlier this year. As you know, the Human Life Protection Act that the House passed on a strong vote, I think it was 83 uh, votes in the affirmative, 83, 84, something like that, out of 124 members in the House. In any event, that that bill died in the Senate. The Senate was not able to overcome a filibuster. It was, it was brought to the floor and filibustered. Now, that bill would have protected life beginning at a clinically diagnosable pregnancy, which is about two weeks after a woman would know that that's when she would find out she's pregnant. In other words, when she was diagnosed as being pregnant, there was a pregnancy test. So um, that, that bill failed, and so all we had left in order to stem the tide of abortions, which has risen incredibly in South Carolina, um, in the last few months, since the, actually the beginning of the year, uh, we've gone to, I think it was 986 in February, and then now we're over 1,000 in March and April, and here we are uh, headed toward the middle of May. And the reason that that number is rising so quickly is because South Carolina has become a destination state for abortion. You have women coming from Georgia, primarily, but you have also from Tennessee. Uh, soon there will be there will be women coming from North Carolina because North Carolina is about to. If they didn't yesterday, I didn't actually didn't check the news from North Carolina to see if they passed had passed their um, their pro life bill. I, and I believe they were going to be at twelve weeks, um, but I'm I'm not positive. I just know that the fact that they were about to pass a bill and it looked like they had the votes to overcome a veto by the governor, that that was sort of an impetus. It spurred 
our legislature into taking some action, because obviously if North Carolina were to decide to protect life early in the process, then there would be women coming from North Carolina in great numbers to South Carolina because we're at 22 weeks. Uh, Florida's passed a six-week ban, and we have people coming from Florida. So it, it was uh, we, we were headed toward a record number of abortions. The highest number ever in the state of South Carolina was back in the late 80s. And I believe it was 1988, and that, that would have been about 14, between 14 and 15,000 abortions in South Carolina that year. And if we stay on track and we keep exponentially, uh, the number of abortions exponentially continue to rise because of these other states that have passed more restrictive laws, then South Carolina was on track to have the largest number of abortions ever. And uh, it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to take long to get there. So in any event, yesterday, the House subcommittee took testimony on the Senate bill. I believe it's S-474. And it would protect life in the womb beginning with the detection of a heartbeat, at, and that would be at six weeks. Now, there have been some slight amendments to the bill. And the, the thing that Democrats, were, I think, were hoping to do was to modify the bill in some way so that it would be more difficult for the Senate to accept it. Uh, the Senate, I'm sure, and I can't tell you this 100% sure because I haven't had anybody directly tell me that there's been some kind of agreement between the Senate and the House, but I'm, I'm, I do know that discussions were taking place between House leadership and Senate leadership among Republicans, which is a normal process. I mean, you've you, if you're going to pass a bill in the House or pass one in the Senate, then it's good to know what its prospects are in the other chamber. And so I'm, I'm sure, at least I feel confident, that some kind of agreement has likely been reached, that uh, there's confidence that the Senate could pass the bill that they passed before if it comes back to them with limited amendments. And so that's that's been right now, I think, the plan to get all this done by the end of the day tomorrow because the session ends tomorrow. So yesterday, the expedited process was to have the testimony in the subcommittee. Then the full committee debated this until well into the evening last night. Uh, I stayed until about uh, 7. Uh, I was between 7 and 7.30, and then I just had to head home because it takes me at, at that time of day, it takes about two hours for me to get from the state house to my house here in Greer. So um, I just I, I couldn't stay any longer. But there were a number of amendments, as many as between 50 and 60 that were being offered up uh, by Democrats on the committee. And they had to go through those and give opportunity for the Democrats to make their case, even though they didn't have the votes to really stop the bill from coming out of the Judiciary Committee. And at the end of the day yesterday, literally, uh, that's what happened. Uh, the bill passed from judiciary to the House floor, where, as I understand it, it's going to be on the contested calendar, which is going to make it a little bit more difficult for the House to get to it uh, by tomorrow. Um, I'm sure they'll work on it today that both the House and the Senate go in session today in South Carolina at 10 o'clock. The vote total was 16 to 7 with two of the members not voting. And I, I just have to say kudos to our Republicans in the House who stood firm. Uh, they rec they recognized, they, they turned away 
all of the amendments that were offered by the Democrats, recognizing that to alter that bill uh, any more than it's already been altered would put it in grave jeopardy of being able to pass the Senate. And so they, they just they turned away from all the amendments and passed the bill out to the House floor. So we'll see what happens today. As I said, the House goes into session at 10 o'clock. We've got today and we have tomorrow. Now, you know, is it possible that the legislature could be called back? Um, that, that's possible, but we have no idea if that's actually going to happen. Or, um, But it, it, there's a possibility that that could happen if there's not enough time left to get the bill passed by the end of the day tomorrow. Remember, it's got to pass the House, and it's also got to go over, and the Senate has to concur, which can be, it can be done fairly quickly, um, but we're running out of time, so they're going to have to get on it pretty quick here, pretty soon. All right, uh, a New York jury has found Trump guilty of sexual assault and defamation, awarding $5 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll, who says that more than 25 years ago, in fact, it was about 27 years ago, it was 1996, I believe, Trump raped her in a dressing room at Bergdorf's. Now, she didn't report the alleged crime to the police, and she originally described her encounter as a fight. In fact, I want to I go to the Federalists because they've got some good information today about taking us back to interviews that Carol gave right after the incident where she alleged that something took place between her and, and President, former President Trump. And, of course, he was not, back in 1996, his, his political career had not even been talked about, I don't think, um, at that time. But in an interview with the New York Times, she said, quote, it was an episode. It was an action. These are her words. It was a fight. It was not a crime. It was, uh, I had a struggle with a guy. And then she added in the same interview, I am not, I have not been raped. Something has been done to me. I fought. That's the thing. And then in a separate interview, that, that, that was with the New York Times. And then in a second interview with MSNBC, she said, um, she was asked by an MS, MSNBC reporter at the time, if she was attempting to press criminal charges against Trump, and her answer was, again, kind of bizarre here because she flatly said no, and when asked why, she said, well, I would find it disrespectful to the women who are down on the border who are being raped around the clock down there without any protection. It would just really be disrespectful. Um, okay, I'm not sure how her situation relates to women at the border. I suppose she was trying to make a political statement about immigration policy and about the abuse that women who are coming to the United States illegally suffer on the southern border. That that would be my that that would be my guess, but I would have to guess at that because that's kind of a bizarre statement. I mean, why would she say I'm not going to accuse anybody of rape because of women who are being raped constantly. And, of course, she didn't offer any evidence to support either allegation, either that she had been raped or that women were being constantly raped at the border. That's just one of those statements that's migrated into our conversation in the culture that is sort of accepted rather than in most, in most uh, times challenged. So... You know, she she did. She went on and said, "My, I guess, to try to understand 
the, the allegation about women being raped at the border. She said, look, mine was three minutes. I'm a mature woman. I can handle it. I can keep going. You know, my life has gone on. I'm a happy woman. So then in, of course, 2022, we have the entrance of George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband, who recommended a lawyer for Carol that, so that she could bring a defamation suit against Trump for denying the rape allegation and accusing Carol of being a liar. Um, and this, of course, in 2019, Carol wrote a book, and in that book she accused the president then of rape. And so she, she wrote an essay for New York Magazine that inside the fitting room, Trump pressed her against the wall, forced his mouth onto hers, though she continued to laugh. At some point, she said she was able to force, he was able to rather force himself upon her before she could break away and exit the store. Now, what's interesting about this is this happened in a fairly busy department store in New York City. So normally the dressing room doors are locked. So how would uh, Trump and Carol have gotten into a dressing room without an attendant? And if, and if attendant was anywhere near, then they would have heard what was going on in the dressing room. They would have seen two people of the opposite sex, which back in 1996 we still had opposite sexes. If, if you saw two people going into a dressing room at that point, uh, that should raise some suspicion. And if you heard what must have taken place, if Carol's accusations are anywhere near accurate, um, I think it would have raised alarm bells and something would have been done to intervene. And what about the other shoppers? Are you going to tell me that there was no one else in uh, the area of the dressing room when all of this took place? Because now you've got Carol herself describing this as a fight. Um, she said, I fought. That's the thing. Um, she said it was not a crime. It was a struggle with a guy. Well, any kind of struggle that's going to take place in a public, uh, take, that takes place in a public place like a department store in New York is going to be noticed by somebody else. So this, you know, now that that's talking about her responses prior to her comments in the book in 2019. And then after she had a lawyer that was recommended by George Conway. And of course, George Conway is a nefarious never Trumper who would do anything and has been known to make outrageous statements toward former President Trump because he can't stand him. So the jury in this case, because of some holds in Carol's memory, maybe because of the fact that she denied early on that she was raped and there was no forensic evidence because we're, again, talking about something that happened 27 years ago, they didn't find the rape accusation to be supported by evidence, but they did find that Carol was a victim of sexual abuse. And this could stem from the fact that the judge in the case gave the jury three options. They could find rape, sexual assault, or um, forcible sexual activity, something along those lines. Um, uh, forcible touching, that's what it was. Um, was was the, that was the three options that the judge gave. Well, they chose the middle one, which most of the time when juries in any kind of case are given options like that, unless they're fully convinced that the most egregious accusation was true, 
then they're going to choose the one that's in the middle. They're, they're likely not going to go with the least. They're going to go with the middle ground because they didn't have a lot to operate with here. And this was their way of saying, okay, we believe something happened. We believe it was more than just touching. Um, and so now this is the verdict that we're going to come up with. And it only took them three hours to do this. Now, you got to keep in mind, this was a Manhattan jury. And so, obviously, in New York, there's going to be a lot of animus against uh, pres former President Trump, and it wouldn't have been too hard to find jurors who would agree that something, something bad happened. National Review, the editors got together, and they wrote about this, which I, I think was um, that, that this is an interesting take, uh, because they actually said, and, and they pointed out, that in a civil case— a preponderance of the evidence is what's required. In a criminal case, you have to have beyond reasonable doubt. But in a civil case, just preponderance of evidence, more likely than not that this happened. And so, um, you know, of course, Trump continues to insist that the incident never happened, that he has no idea who Carol is. Now, there is a black and white photograph admitted into evidence of the two of them chatting at a party in the late 80s. But, that you know, you talk about thin. I mean, how many people would have been at a party where Trump was present and they might have had a conversation and somebody snapped a picture of him? That doesn't mean that he would remember her because that would be over 30, uh, almost 40 years later, um, and, and it could have been just a chance encounter. Now, because it wasn't a criminal case, Trump didn't have to attend, so he chose not to. And, and I'm going to say, while I believe that this case was contrived in order to hurt President Trump, I believe that in the same way that, that Democrat operatives went out and found witnesses who were willing to fabricate stories about Kavanaugh to try to keep him off the United States Supreme Court— I think Democrats went out and found Carol. Uh, she, they found somebody who was willing to allege rape. And the thing that really began to cause the, um, the jury, I think, to move towards sexual assault as opposed to rape was the fact that the judge allowed the Access Hollywood tapes, that, that recording, to come in. And the judge also allowed two women to testify that they had been sexually assaulted, um, and and so they came they came into the courtroom and gave testimony that in two thousand I think it was two thousand four um, and then earlier that each of them at separate incidents had been sexually assaulted assaulted by Trump, and it was that preponderance of evidence. It was the Access Hollywood tapes where Trump bragged about. Uh, being able to assault women uh, because if he's a celebrity, he can get by with it. And, that's, and he called that, he later called that nothing more than locker room talk. But it was the two women who came forward and said, look, this happened to us. We were groped. We were in some way sexually, it was, there was sexually aggressive actions made toward us. Um, and so, and Judge Kaplan allowed those two women to testify. Their names were Jessica Leeds and Natasha Stoinoff. 
and they both claim that Trump sexually assaulted and inappropriately, uh, inappropriately touched them, one in 1979, the other in 2005. So I was looking for that information. Um, so that's, that, that's where the jury came up with sexual assault. They said, well, you've got Trump in his own words saying that he, because he's a celebrity, can get away with sexual assault or um, touching women inappropriately, and they won't do anything. Uh, and then you've got the two women who came forward to say, well, Trump did this to us, although there's no corroborating evidence for either one of them. And then President Trump, by not being there and not taking the stand, I think that hurt him because I think this jury would have liked to be able to look him in the face and be able to tell whether they think he's telling the truth or not to defend himself. Now, I, I didn't expect Trump to go to the trial. I didn't expect him to testify. He did have to give a deposition earlier in the year, in fact, several. And in the deposition, he didn't help himself because he basically said, look, Carol's not even my type. And then he said to the female lawyer who was asking the questions in the deposition, you're not my type either. So he had kind of a well, not kind of, he had a, a, a very arrogant attitude about the whole thing. And I don't think that helped with the jury deliberations either and the possibility of finding for President Trump instead of finding for Gene Carroll. Um, but that's Trump's style. I mean, he's, he believes the whole thing is a lie, which when you look at the evidence and the way that she remembers the case and in the same way of the Kavanaugh case, the accuser there remembered details that other people disputed. And here she is just giving interviews to the New York Times and MSNBC that contradicted her own accusation. And so the jury somehow looks at all this evidence and they decide, well, it's not rape because we don't have any evidence of that. We don't have any DNA. We, 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 it seems murky that she was raped, but we think something happened in there. We think that there was an encounter and that something happened. And so based on that, we're going to grant her $5 million, uh, $3 million for defamation and $2 million for the sexual assault. So now here's the big question. Um, first of all, or, or, or the big question is, how is this going to affect the election? Of course, that's what's on everybody's mind. Uh, another question associated with it that's significant is, what, is, what are Trump lawyers going to do now? Are they going to appeal? Uh, President Trump says yes, and the lawyers say yes, that they're going to appeal, because it doesn't make any sense that Carol didn't allege sexual, sexual assault. She alleged rape, and she's always said at least once she began calling it rape, she didn't call it anything to start with, but once she began calling it rape, then she never wavered from her story. The lawsuit was based on the fact that she claimed she had been raped, and although the jury didn't believe the rape accusation, they decided that they believed, well, she was probably sexually assaulted. I mean, I think that's the hole that Trump's lawyers can drive a truck through to maybe get this decision tossed on appeal. So I'm sure they're working out on that already. All right, but what about the election? What, the big question is, in, for the election, is this going to make any difference? I don't think it makes any difference for those who are Trump supporters. I mean, I, I think the Republican response to the verdict is uh, 
We've got a couple of senators who have spoken out and some others who don't want to go on the record, but uh, who have spoken out about it. Senator John Thune, the second-ranking Republican in the Senate, said this. He said, I think there's going to be an ongoing drumbeat over the next couple of years as Trump is a candidate. People are going to have to decide if that's a factor. For a lot of voters, it's going to be. So Senator Thune Thune thinks thinks this is going to hurt Trump. This is going to be a a problem if he's the candidate to run against Joe Biden. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida said this jury is a joke. The whole case is a joke. So you've got those extremes in the Republican Party. You've got some who say, look, this may not hurt Trump in the primary because Trump's primary supporters are solid. In fact, the more these accusations are brought against him, the more his base is going to be solid in supporting him for the nomination. And I I, I don't think there's going to be any wavering based on this decision. But the big question is, what does this do for the general election? How do independents look at this? How do people outside of the base of the Republican Party view the fact that the Democrats are now going to be able to run against someone who, in a courtroom, has been found guilty in a civil suit. Now, this is not criminal, but in a civil suit, there's been a jury that said, based on the preponderance of evidence, the former president committed sexual assault against against this woman 27 years ago and defamed her by denying it. So I, I, I can't answer that question. I think it will make a difference with independence. Um, I don't think it's going to make that much difference with the base other than to solidify the base. Um, I don't think report Republican uh, voters in general, although though they may be uncomfortable about it, I don't think they're going to side with this jury. I think they're going to see this as just an ongoing effort by those who hate Trump on the right and on the left to do him in. I mean, the fact that you've got George Conway involved and finding a lawyer for um, for the plaintiff here, for Miss Carroll, uh, that, that that raises all kinds of red flags in terms of the objectivity of the whole thing, because obviously, like we said earlier, George Conway is someone who can't stand President Trump, and I think would do just about anything to defame him or to end his political career. So this thing is 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 gonna. I, I don't know what it's going to do. We'll, we'll have to wait. My prediction is that it will hurt President Trump with some independent voters, but it will not do anything to erode his base of support. But as these cases, and I, I've talked about this before, there's, there's an effect of the cases piling up. It didn't help President Trump's case with federal prosecutors when the Proud Boys were convicted of uh, you know, got, had a major conviction against them in the January in planning January six, and their uh, they were convicted of seditious conspiracy to essentially overthrow the government, stop the election process. With them being convicted, that gives the the Justice Department a little bit more motivation, a little bit more confidence to to charge the president with the same charge. Uh, based on evidence that was presented against the Proud Boys. And so that could be a charge that's coming. Is that going to move the needle? Well, it's not with the Republican base. Again, that's just going to cause people to rally around Trump 
and to, to close ranks around him. Will it make any difference if he's charged with obstruction in the documents the, uh, that he took to Mar-a-Lago? Um, is that going to make a difference? Is there going to be people who walk away from him if it can be demonstrated that he instructed his lawyers to lie about how many of the documents, the classified documents that he had actually turned in, and the fact that he moved them around within his residence? I doubt that's going to move the needle with supporters. What about the charge in Georgia? The fact that he could be charged with trying to interfere with the election. And now that a lot of these um, electors who, there was a story, in fact, it came out last week, late last week, about the electors in Georgia who were going to gather. And in fact, they did have a meeting and prepare to become an alternate slate of electors in the event that the uh, Georgia case that a judge ruled that the, uh, that the Georgia election system was corrupt and that the results should be thrown out. These were electors that were going to be ready to support President Trump should that happen. And, of course, now in order to get immunity from possible prosecution, a number of them have cut a deal saying that they're willing to testify. But the thing that every one of them said, and you have to read into the story, when you look at the headline of the story, it simply says that these electors have been granted immunity. Uh, to testify. And the thing that you're supposed to think about that is that, oh my gosh, uh, they're going to testify against Trump. Every single one of them said that they had no information about President Trump's involvement in Georgia and that they would not testify to any fact having to do with his involvement. So I'm, I'm not sure why they're giving, giving them immunity unless it's to build the case that these alternative electors were not just simply getting ready in case the courts ruled that Georgia's election was not valid, that they were actually getting ready because on January 6th there was going to be this attempt to stop the government from being able to certify the election, and these Georgia electors were going to be ready to step in and become the electoral votes that Trump would need to, be, to stay in the White House. That must be the case that they're trying to make from Georgia, because none of these witnesses, all of them have said, they don't have anything to say about President Trump. So they're still working on that case down in Georgia. So the, the question is, is, is the, as these cases begin to mount up, as more charges are brought to light, as these processes are in the media, and of course the legacy media is going to shine a spotlight on anything that makes Trump look bad, and honestly... Um, I, this is what I think. I think the Democrats and the media want Trump to be the candidate. They want, they want a rematch. They want Biden to run against Trump. But they want Trump so um, tainted, so accused, that once he gets to the general election, the votes that he'll have to have to defeat Joe Biden are not going to be there because of all that there's going to be so many accusations against him, and that's going to move the independents and move um, maybe some Republicans to an independent candidate. Um, and all if all the Democrats unite around Joe Biden, he'll win the White House again. Now, I, I, those that has to be because they don't want they don't want another candidate. They don't want they don't want to run against Nikki Haley. They don't want to run against Tim Scott. They don't want to run against. Ron DeSantis, they want to run against Trump 
because they think they can hang enough baggage around him, maybe even get a criminal conviction between now and the election to taint him to the point that if he's the candidate, he can't possibly win. So that's where we are. That's just keeping you up to date, trying to get some truth in politics and culture. All right, um, let's let's talk about the border again. I, you know, I'm starting to sound like a broken record because we talked about it a lot yesterday. But there's new information out there today being reported by the Washington Times, and actually, it's pretty stunning. Um, according to the Washington T- uh, Times, ICE cut its detention population to fewer than 23,000 at the start of the month. That's down from more than 28,000 six weeks earlier. And their goal, according to Tay Johnson, he's the ICE director, he told he told Congress last month that he wanted to cut the population to as few as 21,000 people in order to leave plenty of detention space to accommodate the border chaos as the administration gives up Title 42 on Thursday night. So what, what are we doing here? Immigrations and Customs Enforcement are releasing immigrants. We, they, don't, they don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going to be. Some of them have criminal records, um, and they're releasing them from custody just for one reason, because they're about to have a surge at the border, and they need to replace the, them. They need the space to put the new people that are coming across, so they're just going to release the ones that they're holding now to create that space. And some of them, like I said, have a criminal record. So what what kind of logic is this? Let's fill the country or with people who have a criminal record, even if it's not. Now, ICE is saying that the people that they're releasing, their criminal record is very low level. Does anybody want to raise their hand and support ICE's understanding of a low-level crime? And by the way, low-level crimes are often a prelude to more serious crimes. So what kind of guarantee? If we have people that have demonstrated that they're willing to break the law, even at a low level, you put them out in the general population, and the chances of them committing a major crime is much higher. ICE didn't respond Tuesday for a request for a comment to the Washington Times, but it said in data published in late April that it had released more than 800 immigrants with criminal convictions last month on top of the 1,410 in March. Most of those were discretionary releases. They're opening up the space. They know they're about to be overrun because Title 42 is going to expire and the government's plan is no plan. It's only to send troops to the border to try to help the people that are coming across. They're not going to prevent them from crossing the border. And yesterday, there was another story out there where the mayor of El Paso is going to be cleaning up the streets of his city. There are 5,000, it's estimated, homeless people on the streets of El Paso. And authorities started this week moving them out. They're going to, they're going to get them out. And, of course, residents are elated that they're not going to have to step over homeless camps walking the streets of El Paso. The problem is I suspect that what the mayor's doing is clearing out those people because they're about to have an influx of up to 15,000 a day. There are as many as 15,000 people waiting to cross between Juarez and El Paso, and the town's going to be overrun. So you can't have 5,000 people already living on the street camping on the streets in El Paso, 
and expect that you're going to be able to handle what's going to come across the border. I mean, this is an impossible situation. The Biden administration is creating an absolute disaster. I don't even I don't think the American people as a whole are paying enough attention to this, not by a long shot, because what's about to happen here is an unprecedented crossing at the border that's going to continue to fill the country because Abbott is not going to put up with it. He's going to bust the illegals from the border towns in Texas to New York, to Chicago, to all these different places. Um, that's going to continue. Other border uh, states are going to continue with the same policy. So what's happening is that when we had we did have a crisis and a situation that was out of control at the border, now because the Biden administration won't do anything to stop the crisis, then it's spreading to the rest of the country. And this is continue, going to continue to happen until President Biden is voted out of office. I mean, there is... That we don't have the Republican majority in the Senate. We, we don't have any way to stop this. I mean, if Republicans pass some kind of bill, they're working on a bill right now that would stem the flow of children coming across the border is one of the things that it would do. But there's no way that that bill has a, has a chance of passing in the Senate. And even if it does, there's not a two-thirds majority that would override a presidential veto. So we're stuck. This is, this is the border crisis that we're going to have with a president that is doing nothing about it, with a uh, secretary of, of, uh, of Homeland Security doing nothing about it, or at least the things he is doing, is not to facilitate stemming the flow at the border, but to facilitate making it easier for them to come into the country once they cross illegally. I, I, you know, I... Until we can vote this administration out of office, this is what we're going to get. Now, speaking of voting them out of office, uh, there's a very disturbing story today at the Daily Signal, and it concerns Executive Order 14019, which President Biden signed into law uh, about two years ago. The, the bill's just a little bit over two years old. And, of course, you may remember that S-2747, the Freedom to Vote Act, was coming out of the Senate, uh, and it would federalize. The purpose of that bill was to federalize election. It's, it would establish election day as a federal holiday. It declares the right of, of a U.S. citizen to vote in any election for federal office shall not be denied or abridged because that individual has been con convicted of a criminal offense. So in other words, it would allow people with um, federal um, offenses on their record to vote, because that's a big Democrat constituency. Big-time lawmakers um, are, are supported, big-time Democrat lawmakers, I should say, are supported by big-time criminals. And the criminal vote tends to be in favor of Democrats. So they're trying to find votes anywhere they can find them. And this bill would have allowed felons to vote. The bill establishes certain federal criminal offenses related to voting. In particular, the bill establishes a new criminal offense for conduct to corrupt, to corruptly hinder, interfere with, or prevent another person from registering to vote or helping someone register to vote. Additionally, it sets forth provisions related to election security, including requiring states to conduct post-election audits. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't allow voter ID. It nullifies voter ID laws. 
It also nullifies redistricting efforts as far as conservatives are concerned. And so this would have been a disaster. I mean, it would have been a federal takeover. The elections are supposed to be conducted state by state. That's constitutional. But this, this bill would have federalized the elections. Now, it was vote, it didn't pass. So you may, well, why are you talking about it? I mean, this is from 21 to 22. Uh, well, I'm talking about it because the executive order, once it did not pass, the executive order that President Biden wrote essentially accomplishes the same thing. So when Democrats can't, can't get their far-left progressive policies through the legislature, then they just get the president to issue executive orders that's going to have to be fought out in the courts. And the executive order includes uh, instructing the Justice Department to inform all prisoners convicted of a felony what their rights are concerning their ability to vote. So they're trying to line up all these felons in prison to vote. This is the federal government. This is the president of the United States using his executive power to get the federal government involved in our election system in a way that's going to tilt the election toward Democrats. The Internal Revenue Service is involved now in voter registration. And according to a group of, of about 50 liberal and progressive activist groups, then they want the Internal Revenue Service more involved in voter registration. The Obamacare exchange is attempting to drive up voter registration. So essentially what the executive order by President Biden does is instruct every government agency to figure out how to get involved in electioneering, which is a violation of the Hatch Act. I mean, this is, this is unconstitutional activity by the, by the president instructing the government to get involved in the elections in a way that's against the law, proven once again that progressives could care less about the rule of law. They don't care about the Constitution. Anything that constrains them from getting their way, and that means winning elections by any means possible, is wide open territory. Uh, members of Congress, this is according to the Daily Signal, uh, members of Congress, the press, and watchdog groups have unsuccessfully been trying to gain information on how the executive order is being implemented. The Justice Department has claimed presidential privilege to shield related documents from release. Now, now think about this a minute. The President of the United States issued a, an executive order telling every agency to get involved in uh, the election process, either through voter registration drives or allowing federal prisoners to vote or other things that are expressly forbidden by the Constitution. And now they have the audacity to say that when nonprofits or investigative groups or even Congress comes and says, we want to know what you're up to, then the president tells them to go pound sand because he doesn't care about anything except getting elected. The Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights spearheaded a progress report on implementation of Biden's get-out-the-vote order. It was joined by more than 50 other liberal organizations, including the SPLC Action Fund, which is affiliated with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Public Citizen, and the Sierra Club. The executive order is unconstitutional. States are supposed to be in charge of election laws. That's according to Representative Ralph Norman from here in South Carolina. That's exactly right. 
the administration has not been telling the American people what they're doing. So in October, Norman, Representative Norman signed a letter along with eight other House Republicans seeking information about how the federal agencies were implementing Biden's executive order. And in January, 36 more House Republicans signed a similar letter asking details on the implementation of the order. But it's getting nobody can get any information. They're stonewalling. They don't want people to know how deeply involved the federal government is going to be in the election in 2024. They're setting the stage to stack the deck against whoever the Republican candidate is. And folks, this is, this is outrageous on multiple levels. Every person in this country should be able to know what the federal government is up to. The, the Biden administration, President Biden ran on a plant, platform of transparency. He said he was, he accused President Trump of obfuscating things from the American people, hiding the ball, so to speak. And then President Biden comes along and said, man, everything I do, everything, it's going to be done in the light of day. About the only thing he does in the light of day is eat ice cream cones. Everything else is buried because the DOJ and the Biden and other Biden administration officials are stonewalling in order to keep from uncovering what's going on. The IRS integrated voter inf voting information into a program called Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, which is supposed to provide assistance on tax obligations to low-income Americans. It makes grants to tax preparers to assist low-income filers. But what else does it do? It also is engaged in voter registration drives among low-income voters and those who are working with them. In 2021, the Internal Revenue Service sent out guidance to uh, VITA grantees explaining that grantees were permitted to provide voter registration assistance to their clients. Why? What in the world does the IRS have to do with helping people register to vote, except that there's a presidential executive order instructing them to do that. Uh, the IRS also started tracking the number of VITA grantees who provided such assistance on the part of their programs. So the government says, look, you're going to get some money from the federal government for us to help you to help um, people who have trouble during their taxes because of their income bracket. Oh, and by the way, if you don't help them with voter registration, we're going to know about it, and you may not get this money. Now, that's not been said explicitly, but that's what's implied. Why would you track that number? Why would you look for those government agencies, um, and or, or these agencies getting money from the government, I should say? Why would you look for these and, and, then, and then say, well, we, we want to keep track of how many people you're registering to vote, because we need to make a determination here as to whether or not you, deter you qualify for federal funding at this level. Uh, it speaks volumes. This is according to um, the Foundation for Government Accountability. It speaks volumes that left-leaning activists have greater access to the White House than the American people do, because these progressive groups are coordinating with the White House these efforts that are included in President Biden's executive order, they're coordinating those efforts to affect the election outcome. Uh, our FGA and DOJ lawsuit seeks to force transparency 
This is the foundation for government accountability. They're going to try to force transparency and finally reveal what the Biden administration so clearly wants to keep hidden. We're awaiting the federal judge's final order and plan to share what we uncover with Congress, state attorneys general, and the public to prevent further abuses of the election process. Um, listen, this is this is serious stuff here, and it's a good thing that these organizations are not going to let go of this. We have to know how deep the involvement of the federal government goes in trying to influence the 2024 election, and we've got to know it now. What happened in 2020 is we didn't know because of COVID, a lot of Republicans filed lawsuits trying to prevent the government from changing the voting rules at the last minute in order to make it easier to vote because of COVID. Um, a, lot of, a lot of those lawsuits were lost by Republicans, and it opened up the floodgates for voter irregularities in the 2020 election. Now, some people say it was enough voter irregularities that that's why uh, Biden won and Trump lost. Others say that while it did influence the election, that it didn't influence the outcome. But, but here's something that we can take to the bank. If the federal government gets involved at the level that they're talking about here, that it's already demonstrating that it's willing to get involved, that's definitely going to tip the scales in any election that's close for president, the federal and government's direct involvement in the process definitely would be enough to tip the scales in direction of the Democrats. The report by the progressive groups called Biden's executive order visionary and encourages more federal intervention in state and local elections. The very thing that was rejected by the people that got elected to make our laws, that the bill that did not pass here the president, he doesn't care. Oh, the Constitution, um, it's just a its a suggestion. It's just a bunch of suggestions. I, I get to do what I want to do because I'm the president, and I'm going to write executive orders that violate the Constitution because I know the legacy media is going to give me coverage, uh, cover in order to do that, and I'm going to make it such a secret that by the time all these organizations find out what I'm up to, there won't be enough time to prevent the interference of all these government agencies to tilt the election toward me getting reelected. That's why he's running. I mean, if with considering his age and the issues that have arisen because of his age, considering the failures of his administration, which have been numerous, how in the world does he think he can get reelected? And especially since he's not going to be able to get out and vigorous, vigorously campaign for president. Well, maybe it's because he's already written the executive order that's got the federal government so involved in the election process that it's going to be a foregone conclusion. The Health Resources and Services Administration issued guidance for nearly 1,400 federally funded community health centers to support government registration uh, of voter registration efforts. In December 2021, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services committed to making it easier for consumers using healthcare.gov, Obamacare's online insurance exchange, to connect with voter registration services and get related assistance. Do, does anybody think that that means that the, the federal government, with the federal government agencies controlled by President Biden, and the current administration, that any of these registration efforts are going to result in a bunch of conservatives getting, uh, getting registered to vote? Of course not. This is all about one thing, 
It's about tilting the election. It's about changing the outcome and tilting the election toward Democrats. And I, again, I, I think that's why President Biden is, has decided to run again. I think he's confident that these processes are in place and there's not going to be enough time to challenge them to stop the processes from upending the 2024 election. Now, it, it, these again... It's not a foregone conclusion. I don't want to leave you with this idea, well, it's hopeless. What are we going to, there's nothing we can do. No, there's something we can do, and there's something being done. These Republican congressmen are demanding answers, and these watchdog agencies have filed lawsuits, and I believe they'll be successful because the government can't just tell the citizens to go pound sand when it decides to, to get involved in voter registration to the level that the president has ordered these agencies to get involved. All right. Um, Tucker Carlson is looks like he's going to be back on Twitter. In fact, the idea is that Carlson is going to have his show, a show that is similar to the show that he was doing on Fox, is going to be on Twitter. A lot of people were talking about saying that they believed that Carlson had cut a deal with Elon Musk. Elon Musk put out a statement yesterday saying there is no deal, and there's been a lot of confusion because supposedly Tucker Carlson is still under contract to Fox News, which he is, and what what does that mean when it comes to non-compete, and is, is Fox News going to continue to pay Tucker once he opens a show on Twitter that's obviously going to take away Fox viewers? Here's what Tucker Carlson said on Twitter yesterday um, about the possibility of the show. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon. Okay, what's interesting to me about that? is that Elon Musk says, look, we don't have a deal. So Musk said that Tucker has the same right as every other Twitter user. As long as he goes out and uses Twitter within the parameters that are set, then is no problem with whatever his plans are to be on Twitter. But it appears that there hasn't been a handshake or an agreement somehow uh, to bring Tucker over to Twitter. And yet that's what he intends to do. And according to, if you listen to this whole statement, he's talking about the fact that the truth is being obscured, not by direct lies, because it's not that the New York Times, for the most part, now there are direct lies coming from the legacy media, but for the most part, things that are reported in the Washington Post and in the New York Times could be fact-checked back to the foundation of the story being accurate, but the way they get around or, or they get to manipulation, I should say, is that they they take the truth and they wrap it in false statements. They obscure information that you need to to have to interpret the truth. And let me just say, if if you're getting funneled or 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 I uh, should say screened information, if you're finding out only what the legacy media wants to tell you, particularly, the uh, outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, even to some degree the Wall Street Journal, the cable networks. I mean, you're only getting what someone has made a decision 
that you should get, which means you're not getting the whole truth, you're getting at best part of the truth, and then a lot of the facts that you are getting are being distorted for political purposes. Um, that's that's going on on an unprecedented level. Now, when I say unprecedented, I understand when you go back to the Civil War days, you go back to the Revolutionary War days when our country was just getting started. I mean, you had whole newspapers that were dedicated to one person or another. They were either beholden to Thomas Jefferson or to John Adams, uh, or and they were totally critical of the other side. They were completely partisan, in other words. But the nonpartisan nature of news gathering has supposed to, been, to have been the watchdog, the foundation of, of, of protecting our rights is to have a media that tells us the truth, a news organizations that do investigations and then report accurately to the American people because in order to have a constitutional republic, we the people have to be an informed people. And if the information we're getting is distorted, if it's manipulated, if it's outright lies, then there's no way that we can maintain our republic. And so Tucker Carlson says that his show is going to boldly find the truth wherever he can find it. And because Twitter is still a free speech platform, he believes, that's the platform that he intends to use to push his show. Um, that leads me to the end of the program today, but I just want to remind you that that's my goal here at Truth and Politics and Culture is to bring you the truth in both of those areas, in politics and in culture, and of course to do so with an eye to the Christian worldview. Uh, understanding truth is objective because it's based on an objective standard, which is the Word of God. So if you like the program, help me spread the Word. Would you pass it on to other people? You can get this program wherever podcasts are available. You can get it. I know it's at Spotify, iTunes, and Apple Podcast. And there are other platforms that are carrying it now. You can watch it live on YouTube. You can see it live on Facebook. And you can go to Dr. Tony Beam. That's drtonybeam.com. And you can listen to the program every morning from 7.30 to 8.30 live. Thanks for listening today. I really appreciate it. Uh, today's going to be another active day in the South Carolina legislature. And so I'm going to be down there, and tomorrow we'll probably start off again with some, uh, some idea of what's taking place in Columbia, and then we'll move on to the national stories as we get ready for the end of Title 42. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope that you are able to get out and make a difference today in our culture, in our world, by standing for the truth. God bless you.